It is another privilege and a blessed one at that that allows us to gather on this Lord's Day afternoon and to do so under the banner of Psalm 29.2, which again reads for us, Give unto the Lord the glory due unto His name. Worship the Lord in the beauty of holiness. And tonight as we've gathered to worship God in the beauty of holiness and to do so in the manner in which He is prescribed, we certainly intend that it will magnify His name and that you and I shall be improved and bettered because of the capability that we have to be here and to enjoin ourselves in this worship service. The songs that we've sung, the prayer in which we've engaged, all have prepared us to open the Word of God, to be led and challenged by some of those matters found therein. And tonight, we come to a woman taken in adultery. That text read for us in John 8, verses 1 through 11. I would invite you to keep that page open as we frequently refer to it. And time and again, we will in fact ask some pertinent and leading questions about exactly what does this passage teach. What were the usages so often seen in olden times of this text? And how in fact is it used so often today? By way of introduction, some of these thoughts might well in fact be appropriate to mention even at this moment. It is an absolute tragedy. In fact, a tragedy of eternal import that any word piece of God's Word is abused, misapplied, and misunderstood, and certainly misinterpreted. And yet there are so many that seem to fall under that heading and that themselves fall in that category. Perhaps one that stands among that list would be Ephesians 2.8, You're saved by grace through faith. Many take that lifted absolutely from its context and use it to teach what the thoroughness of the Scriptures do not teach. Others from John 1.17 will say, Isn't it true that in fact the law was given by Moses, but grace and truth came through Jesus Christ as if there is no law under the law of Christianity? Again, taking that passage and using it to teach what it does not teach. Others, as you can well see, may turn to 1 Corinthians 1.17 and use this as an absolute conclusion to this end where Paul said, Christ sent me not to baptize. And thus, there some will say, you have it. Paul wasn't sent to baptize and hence we are not in such a position today. One must twist and pervert the Scriptures to reach that conclusion. The context will not allow it, and neither does the thoroughness of the remainder of the passages in the Word of God. But the point is again is well taken. Some passages of the Bible have lent themselves to much abuse and to much misinterpretation. And John the 8th chapter verses 1 through 11 also seems to fit in that category. During our Bible class this morning, questions were raised to the point of asking about situational ethics and asking about other matters that at least are tangent to it. This passage is, without question, the central one so often employed to assert the reality of it in the mind of many. This evening, we will address that directly and head on with a desire to, in fact, see what does the passage teach, what does it not teach, and in fact, a proper interpretation demands that we use it in what way. And so with that in mind, You'll notice the text was read for us just a moment ago, and the scene is a very familiar one. From a historical standpoint, let's first place it in its context. We will, in essence, rehearse a bit of the history, and then following that, we will use it to draw some lessons and see if we can't properly interpret this passage before us. Just to see, in fact, where we will be going. 
Notice three things that are quite often utilized as being taught by this passage. First of all, there are some who will directly state that from this passage, it is not proper to judge the activities of others. Others will make use of this same text to teach that situational ethics is in fact taught in the Word of God. Still others will employ this text to teach that law keeping, that is to say obedience to commandments, is not that important because here Christ set that aside when He dealt with the punishment related to this woman taken in adultery. We shall ask about all three of them before the lesson is completed, asking about what does the Bible say about them and does this passage teach that? As we begin that proceeding of our approach to the text, let's first of all affirm the setting and as we do so, we will of course appreciate the claims that some have asserted relative to the matter of this passage itself. First of all, beginning near the top, there is no question as to the Lord's popularity by the time we arrive at John chapter 8. Many statements in passages prior to this one have already affirmed that many had begun to take heed to the Lord's teaching. Large multitudes had begun to gather around Him and listen to the precious words that were spoken by Him. In fact, you'll notice even at the outset of this passage in John 8 verses 1 and 2, you'll notice the Lord came to the temple and the text in fact reminds us, all the people came unto Him, verse 2. Interestingly, this did not go unnoticed by the various Jewish authorities. They were aware of the influence the Lord was beginning to have. They were well aware of the fact that if that continued, they would be less respected and less honored and less followed by the character of the multitudes. And so it is near the top. You'll notice on this occasion, verse 1 tells us Jesus went into the Mount of Olives. On that occasion, He left Jerusalem, but we quickly learn the next morning that He returned. And early in the morning He came again into the temple, and all the people came unto Him, and He sat down and taught them. The Lord took that typical position, that typical deportment of a teacher. He sat down, this large multitude gathered there in, in His midst, and He proceeded to teach them. Verse 3 goes on to say, And the scribes and Pharisees brought unto Him a woman taken in adultery, and when they had set her in the midst. And so while the Lord was teaching, in the midst of His delivery of these precious messages, whatever they may have been, the Pharisees and scribes bring a woman to Him. I've asked you to notice, if you would, the meaning of that word brought. In Greek, it could mean one of two things. It could mean that they led her, in essence, in a rather kindly disposition, that they actually directed her to this placement where Jesus was. But it also could be that they, in essence, forced her against her will, certainly, but perhaps even dragging her and bringing her to this place before Jesus. You'll notice that as they brought her in verse number 4, they begin to speak and they say, Master, this woman was taken in adultery in the very act. And here in the midst of this group, no doubt an embarrassing situation for her, no doubt a very uncomfortable situation to say the least, and yet here in that midst they directly accuse that this woman was taken in the very act of adultery. 
It is as though they had eyewitnesses to the event. It is as if they directly affirm that we've seen this, and in the very act was she discovered and taken. You'll notice with me that as the scene goes onward, that testimony that she was taken in the very act is certainly a very significant one, and John is very clear to point that fact out to us in his writing. Following that, we next appreciate this. They proceeded to then say, verse 5, Now Moses in the law commanded us that such should be stoned. But what sayest thou? There is an initial interest, it would seem, on their part. What is the proper justice in this matter? Based on those words only, one would think that perhaps they had her best interest at heart. We're interested in pursuing what should be right. Now Moses said that such ought to be stoned. They now turn their question to him. Jesus, Master, what do you say should be done to this woman? What is your verdict on the matter? As one who has taught so many, as one who now for some time has been given to instructing and guiding and teaching as the one from heaven, what is your verdict? What is the thing that you would say ought to be done to this woman? Next we come to verse number 6. We learned something, of course, very quickly, that our previous thought wasn't perhaps as fully as it might have been. This they said, tempting him, that they might have to accuse him. Their interest, you see, was not in justice. Their interest was not that she should, in fact, be done to in a way that would be the proper and right thing in the eyes of God. Their interest was to tempt the Savior. Their interest was to ensnare and entrap him in what he might have said and to do that in such a way that he could be disrespected in the eyes of that multitude and furthermore in the eyes of the totality of Israel. Because after all, they, as they so often had done, had schemed in such a fashion and way that this particular question, one might have thought, put Jesus on the horns of a dilemma. After all, what would one think were his choices? First of all, if Jesus had said, she should not be stoned, then that would directly have indicated that, well, apparently you don't believe in Moses. Apparently you do not give interest and credence and character to the Old Testament Scriptures. And of course, for the Pharisees and scribes, that was anathema. They, in fact, were those who they claimed always gave the utmost attention to the Word of God. And so had Jesus said that, well, Moses' words need to be ignored, Moses' words need to be overlooked, those scribes and Pharisees could have used this to immediately begin to diminish and even eliminate the influence of Jesus. This man doesn't have any credence to the Word of God. This man has no interest in what God has said. This man has encouraged one to break the law of Moses. You can imagine the kind of influence that that wording would have had. Suppose Jesus had said the opposite. This woman needs to be put to death. Just like Moses said, she's guilty of adultery. But remember, the Romans had stripped the Jews of the power of capital punishment. They no longer had the ability to put one to death. John said so in John 18 verses 31 and following. And so it is on that occasion they would immediately use Jesus as one who taught against Rome and they would in fact have lifted Him up as a troublemaker in Israel. He's opposing the Roman government. He's encouraging sedition and strife. This man needs to be eliminated. 
it would seem as if they had a perfect question, doesn't it? What could the Lord possibly answer to get out of this dilemma? In their mind, either way He answered, they had Him. Might we now turn to the next verse? How did the Lord react? And what did He say? Verse number 6. This they said, tempting Him, that they might have to accuse Him. But Jesus stooped down and with His finger wrote on the ground, as though He heard them not. Remember, Jesus was sitting down, so He merely from that position stooped down and with His finger wrote in the ground. Interestingly, it's the only reference we have in all the gospel accounts of the Lord writing anything. We do not know what He wrote on the ground. Maybe it was something substantive. Perhaps it was doodling. But at any rate, with His finger, He wrote on the ground. And we can appreciate this interesting fact. The crowd wasn't satisfied with that reaction. Perhaps in their mind, His silence was an indication we've got Him. He can't get out of this dilemma. And so in verse number 7, So when they continued asking Him, they weren't going to let Him off the hook. They weren't going to let Him slide out of this in silence. They continued to ask Him. And in the Greek, the verb that's employed indicates a continuation, a continual asking. They were not going to let the subject die. And so it is in verse 7, So when they continued asking Him, He lifted him up Himself and said unto them, He that is without sin among you, let him first cast a stone at her. After continuing to press Him, demanding of Him a response and a verdict and an answer, He then lifted Himself back up and these were His words. He that is without sin among you, let him first cast a stone at her. It is with those thoughts in mind. You'll notice they lead us to the very next set of ideas in the text before us. Inasmuch as that statement of verse number 7 is now before us, the Lord having made that statement, it says, again, He stooped down and wrote on the ground. One more time, the Lord proceeded to write there in the nature of that ground, what it was he wrote, we do not know. But this much is certainly again clear. The impact was monumental upon those that were therein gathered. The impact was immediate and it was incredibly forceful. Because verse 8, or rather verse 9 says, And they which heard it, being convicted by their conscience, went out one by one, beginning at the eldest, even unto the last. And Jesus was left alone and the woman standing in the midst. At first, this crowd that had been so determined, this group that had been so intent upon catching the Savior, it mattered not to them the embarrassment brought upon the woman. It would appear they really could not have cared less. Their interest was in tempting Jesus. But in this one little sentence, He that is without sin among you, let him first cast a stone at her. And immediately, it seems as if their countenance changed. Now we notice that one by one, after Jesus stooped down again, they exited the matter. They departed from the circumstance and situation. And it says it was from the oldest and the youngest. We do notice along the way it says they were convicted by their conscience. And after all of that was completed, we notice that verse number 10 says, When Jesus had lifted up Himself and saw none but the woman, He said unto her, Woman, where are thine accusers? 
Hath no man condemned thee? By the fact that they left. By the fact that in, they were no longer present, you and I might state that in the following way. They dropped the charges. There was nothing more to be affirmed. And thus, when the Lord said, Are these thine accusers? Where are they? She responded, No man, no Lord. And so it is, in verse 11, she said, No man, Lord. And Jesus said unto her, Neither do I condemn thee. Go and sin no more. It is with all that in mind that we're left to again question and ask. I think you and I can readily see how that the, those who perhaps are less intent on proper interpretation and who are less given to a thoroughness of understanding the Scriptures might take that and teach some of these things. First of all, notice, as we've stated earlier, some use this to teach, well, aha, there it is. Jesus wasn't that concerned with law-breaking. Here was a woman taken in adultery, open and given, no doubt, to the sentence of death, and yet Jesus overlooked it. He wasn't that concerned with keeping the strict letter of the old law of Moses, and here's proof, proof point. Some will use this text to teach that. You'll notice also some use it to teach this. In terms of law-keeping, in terms of law commandments and obeying those matters strictly into the absolute letter, well, some will say clearly this is an instance in which the Lord was far more interested in what her heart was like. She must have been a good woman. The Lord didn't want her put to death. And so He absolutely overruled the law of Moses. And on this occasion, He set it aside because that law was superseded by the law of love. So we might be told. Perhaps others will use it to assert the following. Here's an instance. Oh, it's true in most instances, some would say, adultery should be punished by death. But here's a certain situation that was unique. It had its own situation and character and circumstance. This particular woman perhaps was a good person on the whole. And thus, Jesus superseded that law of death. So in this situation... Here, love overruled the matter of law. And so many today will still say the same. They will say that strict commandment, that may be what the Bible says, but in this situation, love must prevail. In this situation, grace and mercy must rule. So you don't need to keep the strict letter of the law. Many articles have been written in rather notable publications that in essence assert the same thing that I just said. And you'll notice quite often this passage is one to which attention is given. Our goal for the rest of the lesson, of course, will be this. As we seek to, in fact, study this thoroughly and in more detail, and as we seek to, in fact, set out the question, does it teach what some say it does? Let's be very clear. The Bible, even at this point, does not teach any of those things. And this passage does not either. Let's now proceed through the text again and do so by, in fact, being more thorough and more careful and doing so sometimes by referring to exactly what did these scribes and Pharisees say, to what passages did they refer, how was the illusion made, and what was the proper matter in terms of law. Let's begin in the following way. Five points we ultimately will make in the time left for us tonight. The first has to do with this. 
these individuals brought this woman before Jesus. And they, in fact, directly said, this woman has been, has been taken in, in adultery, in the very act. Now, as we give some consideration, if she were taken in the very act, there must have been a man present. There must have been the man there as well. And so a good question might be this, where was he? They brought the woman, where was the man? That's not a trivial question. It's a very significant question. In fact, for the following set of reasons. That very passage to which they referred, this woman, Moses said, should be stoned. If one revisits the two places in the Old Testament, Deuteronomy 22, 22, as well as Leviticus 20, verse 10, we learn something very special and also very direct about the matter of adultery. Both the man and the woman were to be executed. Both of them were to be put to death, not just the woman and not just the man. And so the fact that they brought only the woman on this occasion, and because she was caught in the very act, supposedly the man ought to have been brought as well, that certainly leads us to in fact suspect this. The absence of the man must cast a degree of doubt upon the veracity and the authenticity and, in fact, the credibility of the case. Could it be, in fact, that it was not as they said it was? We'll have more to say about that in another point in just a moment. But at least the fact that the man wasn't brought must cast a degree of doubt upon the degree of the statement that they had made. But in the second place, consider this also. What about the witnesses? These scribes and these Pharisees who brought this woman and who claimed this woman was taken in adultery and who claimed that she was taken in the very act, that must have meant there had to be some witnesses somewhere. And yet there's no mention at all about the witnesses, none. Those scribes and Pharisees didn't claim to be the witnesses and they didn't assert that they knew that there were any witnesses and they didn't assert that they had knowledge of witnesses. And so the point being made is this one. That takes us back to the Old Testament for just a moment. You'll notice they said Moses said she should be stoned. What really did Moses say in Deuteronomy 17 verses 6 and 7? Moses in fact directly asserted by way of commandment from God that in the act of capital punishment and in the execution of such matters there was to be at least two, perhaps even three witnesses. There had to be at least two. One could not execute another with just one witness. But yet here there's no mention of any witnesses. No one took credit for being a witness at least. And in fact, the fact that they all left out one by one would seem to indicate there wasn't a single witness present. That leads us then to note this. Under absolute strictness to the law of Moses, she could not have been put to death on that occasion because there were no witnesses. But in fact, that leads us to yet a third point. What about the matter of the stoning itself? They said, Moses said she should be stoned. Moses really didn't say that. He said she should be put to death. They, in fact, asserted the word stoning themselves. But that still isn't all that might be stated about this. Inasmuch as she was to be put to death, Moses was very clear under that old Mosaic law about how that death was to take place in terms of who was to be the instigator of it. In Deuteronomy 17 verse 7, 
The Old Testament stated it like this. The witnesses are to be the first ones to lay the hand upon her. The witnesses. And so if they were to stone her, the witnesses needed to throw the first rocks. And so if there were no witnesses here, then there could be no one to throw the first rock. Are we beginning to see a more thoroughness to this circumstance than what may on the surface appear? In light of those three comments, the three initial points we've made, no man present, no witnesses present, and yet the witnesses were to be the ones to cast the rocks first. You'll notice again, Jesus said, He that is without sin, let him first cast a stone at her. Where were the witnesses to cast the first stone? The point then in conclusion, all of them underneath the law of Moses, this woman on that occasion could not have been put to death. There were no witnesses to throw the first rocks. And so those who use this passage to teach some of the things that we noted earlier have really missed a significant set of ideas and points relative to actually what was taking place here. But yet even that isn't all because may we come to yet another point. And this one is exceedingly significant for the following reason. Maybe it has already occurred to you here were a group of individuals, these scribes and Pharisees, who in a proverbial fashion had, as it were, the blood of Christ dripping from their mouth. They wished so much to ensnare Him, to discredit Him, to cause Him to be disrespected amongst the multitude. And here they had, they thought, a perfect circumstance to do it. This woman, so-called taken in adultery. And yet... When the Lord said to them, He that is without sin among you, let him first cast a stone at her. How did that simple sentence, how did that simple statement diffuse their intentions and cause them to walk away one by one? May I submit to you, that's an awfully good question. What was it in that which the Lord said that so diffused their energy and their intent that they left? There might be some who would say, this was merely Jesus' way of saying, well, who among you is guiltless enough and perfect enough to cast the first stone? I don't think that justifies the case. Picture it this way. That would in essence be Jesus saying, well, everybody has their mistakes and everybody has their imperfections. And so those of you who are in fact in the circumstance of having the least number of them, why don't you cast the first stones? That would not have satisfied them. Given the degree of how much they hated the Savior, how much they wished His teaching to stop, how much they wanted His miracles to not influence the people, that kind of statement by Jesus would never have diffused the situation and caused them to leave. There had to be something else. It had to be something different. May I submit to you, maybe it's buried in what Jesus said. He that is without sin. What kind of sin had they just mentioned to Him? They were accusing this woman of adultery. Could it be that in the Lord's statement, He in essence directed the fact to them that they were guilty of the same thing that they were accusing in the life of this woman. In fact, not only may that have been, the evidence seems somewhat strong, doesn't it? For after all, Jesus knew their heart. The Lord was able to look intently and directly into every one of their hearts. He knew what they were guilty of. He knew what they weren't guilty of. 
It could be that the man who they had not brought was one of them standing there. It could have been that one of them was the very one participating with her in that act. Later in the Roman letter, in fact, we hear these words directly stated to the Jews, and those Jews were the ones mentioned on this occasion. Those scribes and Pharisees were the very ones who had brought this woman. It was to the Jews in Romans 2 verse 1 that Paul said, Therefore thou art inexcusable, O man, whosoever thou art that judgest. For thou that judgest another condemnest thyself, for thou art guilty of the same thing. Amazing, isn't it? That on that occasion, Paul directly stated to the Jews, You who seem so mighty and high, you are guilty of the same thing you're condemning in the Gentiles. Later in verse 22 of that same chapter, he even says, Hast thou committed adultery? In other words, adultery was one of the sins that they themselves were guilty of, but they were over, in fact, using it to condemn others when in fact they were guilty of the same thing. It could have been that in this very statement that takes us back to the scene that we see in verse number 9. When Jesus said, He that is without sin, let him first cast a stone at her. There's a little phrase that appears in verse number 9 that we should now revisit. It says, Being convicted by their own conscience. They left, you see, one by one, having been convicted in their own conscience. Whatever the Lord had said, and He had said, He that's without sin, let him cast the first stone at her, that statement convicted their conscience. Were they guilty of the same sin that they were condemning this woman for? Apparently. Were they, in fact, thus ones playing the role of a hypocrite? Apparently. And thus, in that very idea, we see a dramatic lesson. This passage doesn't come close to teaching what so many say that it does. In fact, it teaches the exact opposite. And in fact, in summary, might we come to the fifth idea and look at what this passage does teach as a set of final lessons on John 8, verses 1 through 11. First of all, we noted earlier that some have used this to say God is uninterested in law-keeping. He's uninterested in obedience strictly to commandment. We've now seen this passage doesn't teach that. It teaches the exact opposite. No wonder Jesus didn't, in fact, state she was worthy on that occasion of death. He didn't have any witnesses. There were no witnesses beneath the law of Moses to cast the first rocks. No wonder the Lord, in fact, <clears throat> stated on that occasion, Neither do I condemn thee. You'll notice that's a far cry, though, from saying God is uninterested in commandment keeping. Didn't Jesus say in John 14, 15, If you love me, you'll keep my commandments. And what do we read in passages like Hebrews 5, verses 8 and 9? Though he were a son, yet learned he obedience by the things which he suffered. And being made perfect, he became the author of eternal salvation unto all them that obey him. Is God interested in obedience? He is. In 1 John 5, verse 3, Now this is the love of God that we keep His commandments. And His commandments are not grievous. You'll notice, if we love God, we will keep His commandments. In the other words, this passage, in fact, does not teach that we should be uninterested in commandment keeping. In fact, God has given us those commandments because He loves us. They are what will make a happier life here, and they are what will make the only life for us hereafter. 
But what about a second idea? Some have used this to say, well, one is not at liberty then to judge another person, to draw conclusions about their lifestyle and their manner of activity. Again, this passage doesn't teach that at all. Again, we've already learned because there were no witnesses, because the man was not present, she could not be executed on that occasion for that sentence. We learn in other places the, the perfect rightness of drawing conclusions about the behavior of others because you and I may, in fact, need to encourage them in the way of right. No wonder we read in passages like these in Matthew 7 verse 20. We notice that there were false teachers. They went about as ravening wolves in sheep's clothing. Oh, they appeared to be noble and honest and upright and godly. Jesus said, you'll know them by the fruits. You observe the kind of life they live. Does it harmonize with what they teach? And does it harmonize with what the Scriptures have taught? You judge them based on those observations. Jesus did say in John 7, 24, Judge righteous judgment. We thus are in a position. We're supposed to judge righteously. As you and I seek to do that, how often do we find that Paul did that very thing? Paul was able to state, say to Alexander the coppersmith, to Hermenes, as well as others, about the nature of their false teaching. If Paul was not in a position to judge them, how could he have ever made that statement? But he directly to the face said that they were in error. He even said that to Peter on one occasion because Peter was to be blamed. It is to be noted then that you and I, as long as we draw conclusions within the friendly confines of the Word of God, that is not a disallowed thing. In fact, it's a commanded thing. As you see also, what about the matter of situation ethics? May one employ this passage to this state that in a certain situation, love or mercy or grace will overrule law so that a particular law of God might be conveniently set aside. This passage doesn't teach that at all. As we've just noted, the law of Moses on this occasion demanded the woman's release. There were no witnesses. Thus, it teaches just the opposite of what the situation ethicist would say. And we know so many other passages that demand of us that there are no situations that turn aside the law of God. God's laws are absolute, aren't they? Ye shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free, John 8, 32. Jesus didn't provide exceptions to that statement. He didn't, in fact, offer qualifying phrases. He said, Ye shall know the truth and the truth shall make you free. In Jude verse 3, Contend earnestly for the faith which was once for all time delivered to the saints. Contend earnestly for what? The faith. There are no conditional clauses, accepting clauses, qualifying statements. We contend earnestly for that singular true faith that God has so powerfully and marvelously revealed. That's not to say there may not be difficult circumstances arise in life. But we are not at liberty of setting aside God's commandments and overlooking them as if a situation demands it, for it doesn't. As you think about some of the individuals in the New Testament and ask, were they those who subscribed to situation ethics? Paul encountered a lot of hard situations, didn't he? In 2 Corinthians 11, beginning in verse 23, 
How often was he beaten? How often was he shipwrecked? How often was he in perils? How often was he in trials? How often was he in fact treated so miserably? In every one of those circumstances, why couldn't Paul just have told a lie on the spur of the moment? To have gotten him out of a beating or out of a shipwreck or out of another difficulty and just repented of it later. The situation ethicist would say that was fine. Paul knew better. The truth is so important that one must be willing to die for it. For there is no exception to the truth. It is absolutely and completely given from God, isn't it? No exceptions to be found anywhere in the Word of God. No wonder Revelation closes with these words in Revelation twenty-two fourteen: Blessed are they that do His commandments, that they may have right to the tree of life and may enter in through the gates into the city. Situation ethics, not taught in God's Word. That perhaps brings us to one final thing. We should, of course, close the matter with this thought. Jesus did say the woman had sinned. He said, go and sin no more. She was guilty. However, the law of Moses on that occasion did not permit her to be executed. And so today that reminds us to ever be mindful of the character of sin. We should also strive to go and sin no more. Striving, of course, to appreciate that sin is a transgression of God's law, 1 John 3, 4. That sin is unrighteousness in His sight, 1 John 5, 17. That sin is that which, of course, will lead to condemnation of our soul. No wonder the Lord said, go and sin no more. Have you ever wondered what a change might have been wrought in this woman's life? I'm sure she understood the nature of what this release meant. That embarrassing situation had in fact ended up in such a positive way for her. The Lord acknowledged her sin. He could read her heart and knew well the kind of person she was. And yet He said, go and sin no more. Of course, in principle, the Lord says that to you and me today. Go and sin no more. Strive to in fact walk perfectly in His sight, Matthew 5, 48. Strive to so conduct oneself in such a way that the great honor of all that is Christianity might rest upon us. Tonight, as we've looked at the woman taken in adultery, I think we can fairly summarize it in the following ways. First of all, one would have to admit it is an intriguing episode. Many interesting features, in fact, are to be found in it. But in addition to that, We've learned that the law of Moses, in fact, did not permit her to be stoned on this occasion. Just the opposite of what so many would like to claim. And furthermore, you and I have seen the following points. It would appear from the Lord's statement that those Jewish accusers were in fact themselves guilty of hypocrisy. And when the Lord stated that he that is without sin, they knew well that they were the very ones playing the hypocrite. In their shame, they went out one by one. And in all that, we continue to see that law-keeping is important and it is vital. And keeping God's commandments is the only way in which we illustrate and demonstrate our love for Him and our faith in His Word. Finally, we notice that this does not teach situation ethics. In fact, it teaches just the opposite. That there are fixed situations and God's Word is always to be upheld and obeyed because indeed we are to go and sin no more. Tonight in the analysis of John 8, 1 through 11, maybe there's one here that's been pricked and prompted and convicted 
that you, in fact, need to come forward tonight. God's law is truly immutable in the words of Hebrews 6, verse 19. The law cannot be broken, John 10, 35. If tonight you need to obey that law of God, to become a Christian, to allow the blood of Christ to cleanse you from sin, why not tonight, this second day of January, the year 2011, if we could be of assistance to you, realize that God demands this. Hear His Word, believe Jesus to be the Son of God, repent of your sins, confess His name as the Son of God, and be baptized. If we could assist you in that, we'd be honored to do so. If you have become a Christian at some former time, but perhaps you've begun to think situation ethics is right, maybe you've thought that commandment keeping is not that important, maybe you've thought there's an overruling grace in love and in mercy, understand the Bible does not uphold that thinking and that you are mistaken. If public things have been done and you need to ask for prayers of brethren, we'd be honored to pray on your behalf tonight. And if we could do that or simply pray for your strength, why not let, be that, let that be known if you would. While together we stand and while we sing.